June 24th, 2019. The Nationals have a four and two week against the Phillies and Braves. They do just enough to keep things interesting. Plus, we sit down with Jeff Passan of ESPN and talk about baseball, labor, and love. From Bethesda, Maryland, it's Jacob Rash. From Boston, Massachusetts, it's Johnny Rash. This is the Rashcast with Jake and John. Hi, welcome to the Rashcast with Jake and John. I'm Jake. And I'm John. Uh, so, this week we've got an extra long episode because, uh, just to make an announcement, Jeff Passan is on the program. Uh, and to yeah. ask how Jeff Passan ended up on the program, the answer is, I don't know. But I don't know why he would but he's here, so we'll see, you know, good interview coming up, so, yeah, you know, stay tuned for that. But it was a very interesting week for the Nats, and what was a make-or-break break week, um, you know, Nats play the Phillies for, you know, it's supposed to be four, one game canceled. So Phillies for three, Braves for three, and went four and two in the week. And if you told me coming into the week, Nats would go four and two, I would say, yeah, that's good. Um, but, you know, the problem was the Nats could have gone five and one, if not six and oh. And, yep. you know, that's what the disappointing part of the week is. You know, the four and oh start is great. And then the O and two is hard to swallow, especially when you lose because of Trevor Rosenthal, who finally got released today goodbye trevor and also when you have a st- appearance from austin both who looked very good he looked the best i've ever seen him hitting in the mid to upper 90s with his fastball that really, i mean we we've only seen him four times or so yeah, but but this is you know a far departure from where he was last year when he was hitting low 90s you know that first at bat to acuna today where he blew by two fastballs you know that you know with a, a hitter of acuna's quality you don't see that very often no, and, and Acuna so, did get him eventually, hit a home eventually, run. Eventually, yeah, third time through the order. But he's still, you know, six innings, two runs, seven strikeouts. You take that any time you can get that, especially from a great offense like the Braves. Yeah. And it sucks to see the Nats have to squander that appearance, though, with uh, and the fact that Soroka was out after two innings. Right. Yeah, this is, this is a game that I chalked down as a loss coming into it, but the Nats found a way to make it a frustrating one. Like, I yeah. – I would not have been frustrated if both had given up seven runs and Soroka had shut the Nats down, but the mm-hmm. way they lost it was just immensely frustrating. Yeah. So, you know, you, you look now, the Nats are eight and a half back of the Braves. Luckily for the Nats, you know, it looks like the Phillies are a mess. Um, losing six in a row, uh, three to us, or seven in a row now, three to us, three to the Marlins, getting swept by the Marlins, who the Nats will face next week. You know, not great for them. Um, and the Mets also look like a giant mess. Uh, if you saw that, <laughs> if you saw that story about Jason Vargas and Mickey Calloway almost physically fighting a reporter, that um, was fantastic. Did you hear how that started? Not to digress, but so uh, a reporter said innocuously, according to another reporter who witnessed it, "See you tomorrow, Mickey," and he took that as an insult somehow. Well, maybe uh, because he thinks he's going to get fired. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like he thought. Yeah. So then he, he called him a mother <laughs> uh, You think you're real smart, mother <laughs> I'm quoting, so it's okay to say on this family program. Okay. Uh, and uh, then, yeah, a bunch of crap went down. Yeah, Jason and... Vargas attempted to fight a reporter. It was a, a fun time was had by all. Yeah. 
So with the Phillies on the downward swing and the Mets on the downward swing and the Nats really still on an upward swing, you know, the bullpen is a question still. Um, it looks like it's, you know, you know, we're still two backs of the Phillies, but, you know, I don't know how long. I think by the All-Star break we'll pass the Phillies, um, especially with our schedule coming up. Three against the Marlins, six against, uh, three, six against, six the, Marlins, against the Marlins, three yeah. against the Tigers, and three against the Royals, all teams who are some of the worst among baseball. Right. You know, I think this is a good time to pass the Phillies. But the question now is, could we pass the Braves? You know, we saw the Braves this weekend. We still have 13 more games upcoming against them, which 14. is a lot. 14 games upcoming against them, which is a lot of make time to make up games. But the Braves look legit. Um, Keiko came back Friday night and put up, you know, a Keiko-like start. Um, you know, for a first time out, it was looked good for him. Um, and... Soroka is not going to miss any time with the hit by pitch. And so my question to you, Jake, um, is do you see the Nationals passing the Braves or is the wild card a more realistic opportunity for them? I think the wild card will be tough because there are a lot of teams that are about of the Nats caliber that are in front of the Nats uh, that, uh, you know, the Nats will have to pass every single one of them. They're going to have to play better than every single one of them. And, you know, the Nats... They have that in them. Uh, they've got a tough schedule coming out of the All-Star break, uh, apart from four games with the Orioles. It's all in-division games and games against uh, the division leaders. Uh, but, you know, they have 14 games against the Braves, so I'm not ruling out them being able to take the division. But, uh, you know, I think either route is going to be hard. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of optimism around the Nats, lately and it's understandable because i would say that they have about a 30 percent chance of making the playoffs which compared to three weeks ago when they had maybe a 12 percent chance of making the playoffs if that you know after the sweep uh at the mets things were looking pretty dire uh yeah i understand why people would be optimistic but i think people should realize that they're still in a really tough spot like they have a ton of work to do uh, and yeah, sure, it's possible, but uh, you know, I wouldn't call it likely. And uh, you know, not to be a wet blanket after a pretty decent week, but uh, I mean, it's going to be tough. Uh, it's yeah. you know, at least they've given us a reason to stay tuned, but it's going to be a tough road ahead. Yep. Now onto our first guest. Well, you may know him from his best-selling book, The Arm. You may also know him from his starring role in the film The Million Dollar Arm, where he played unnamed scout number two. He's the head baseball writer for ESPN. It's Jeff Passan. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? What? I'm shaking, guys. I'm so glad that you listed my acting credit there. Because my son, uh, my 11-year-old son, Jack, is sitting in the car with me right now. And he just rips me all the time. <laughs> I, I, I was in one scene. I played a scout. I, like, I mean, I clearly, I clearly was the star of that film. John yeah. Hamm was my co-star. Um, mm-hmm. And... And uh, it was a highlight of my life. And so thank you for so, doing So tell us, what is John Hamm like? John Hamm is the coolest dude in the world. Like, dead <laughs> serious, John Hamm is like a legitimately nice, funny, charming, exceedingly handsome. John 
you want to punch in the face, but you can't because he's a good guy. I, like my, my brother-in-law is the same way. My brother-in-law is like a doctor, and he's a dad, and he knows how to lay tile, and he just does everything really well, and I want to hate him for it, and he's a super good guy, so I can't. That's my problem with with John Hamm, though. No one that handsome should be allowed to be that funny is the problem. I know. I know. It's true. No one that handsome should be allowed to be that funny. Like, no one that handsome should allow to be anything. Like, if you're that good looking, you just need to be good looking. Like, don't be smart, too. Don't be charming. Don't be just mm. be like, be aesthetically beautiful and and live with it and you'll live a pretty good life that way i would think yeah. otherwise it's just like you're being greedy man so uh i figure since this is a baseball podcast we should probably talk a little bit of baseball johnny if you want to ask the first question well I'll, I'll give it to you yeah so i'll get started today um so one of the big storylines this week was with max scherzer and after injuring himself on tuesday during batting practice bunting the ball on his no face breaking his nose and putting shiners under both eyes. He came back the next day on Wednesday during a doubleheader in a game that was pretty important to the Nats um, against a division rival Phillies and dominated. Uh, pitched seven innings, shutout innings, 10 strikeouts, you know, sat you know, it was Max Scherzer. And I think it's, you know, there's very few performances like that in today's baseball where you see a guy come back from injury. I mean, you have Kirk Gibson. He's a famous example in 1988 World Series. But besides that, it's very few and far between to see guys like Max Scherzer um, pitch the way that he did in the circumstances that he did. I, I wanted to do something on Twitter. Like, as you guys have, have learned, I'm, I'm, like, mediocre at best on Twitter. And so when I, <laughs> like, when, I try to, when I try to come up with things that I find to be funny, I tend to stop myself because I say, Jeff, you're not funny. Don't do that. But but I wanted to do one of those things where there was a picture of Max Scherzer with a crazy face, and then there's like that upgrade emoji or button or something like that, and then and then you have Max Scherzer with the black eye. For the life of me, I could not figure out how to do that. And so that was one of those. Okay, Jeff, don't even try moments. And. I need to, like, I, I clearly need to do that more on social media. But So we were talking about Max Scherzer, uh, and one thing that we wanted to discuss is this sort of obsession that that baseball media and that baseball fans have with seeing a team either buy or sell. You know, we saw a bajillion columns, you know, b before the Nats went on their modest, tepid win streak uh, to sort of claw their way back into this about how, you know, how a sale of Max Scherzer might come about if it were going to happen. Uh, and uh, I just, it bugs me that like no one can see, no one can watch what Max Scherzer did and say, listen, that's fun enough as it is. Even if the team sucks, like there's value in being able to trot out a, a future Hall of Famer and certifiably insane person every single fifth day. Like that, there's a a reason to buy tickets. Why is it that that we obsess over that sort of aspect of baseball and stop taking joy in the little things? I think you are hitting on something that 
that has become pervasive not just in your little corner of the world, not just in the baseball corner of the world, but frankly in all sports, and not just in American sports, but international sports as well. I would argue that uh, people these days, and I use the word people in in air quotes, I'm, I'm speaking very generally when I say that, I think sports fans are every bit as much, if not more, interested in what potentially could happen than what actually does happen. Why hot stove season is is uh, so anticipated. Why the trade deadline is such a big thing. Uh, it's why the draft at the NBA and the NFL, uh, you know, has, you know, Adrian Morgenowski front and center in the NBA and in the NFL you're drawing 100,000 people. It, it's the potential of what your team can be that, that gets the dopamine receptors filled. And right. sometimes, sometimes you are on the side of that where your team is the one trading for, and that really excites you. And sometimes you're on the, the, the uh, end of it where your team is the one that is potentially giving up. And there's something really disheartening about that, but that disheartening element is then, you know, potentially fortified by the fact that you're going to be getting somebody new back. And how what's this? person going to be and why is this person interesting and what do I have to learn about this person and when is this person going to be in a nationals uniform so the thing that bothers me about this whole thing is just you know the way that this functions as sort of a useful idiocy for ownership the way that we overvalue prospects in a way that that almost seems to undervalue the present and the way that because you know because of the way that baseball's Salary structure is made, uh, you know, where minor leaguers and young players make much less money. That overvaluing of those assets becomes useful for ownership. That that sort of mentality bothers me. I think that is a totally reasonable, uh, logical thing to say, and a very good read on the situation. And and I think you're right. I think there is a harm. To the game, where people who have gone out and performed at high levels uh, do not get assigned the, the proper value because there is there is something down at the lower end of the market that's completely like crushing uh, the the ability to earn of younger players and and hopefully the next collective bargaining agreement or the discussions that are being had by Major League Baseball and the Players Association right now can, can work to remedy that, and it can bring a little more sanity back to really the entire structure of Major League Baseball's economic system because the, the fact that rental players are going to go for as little as they are, and, and I'm telling you, the market for rental guys right now yeah. is really thin. Mm. The fact that they're going to go for as little as they are when they can swing an entire team season and legitimately win a World Series. Like, isn't that the whole point of this? And as, as much as we love to project prospects and as much as we think we know, really the whole point of prospects now is that they're cost controlled. That is the, that is the allure of them, that they are cost controlled 
for the first seven years of their career. So with with cost control, the interesting thing is the reason why these young players are so cheap and cost controlled is because a lot of minor league players aren't paid a living salary. Uh, they're forced to live in you know these places, you know towns you've never heard of, taking the bus everywhere, uh, just kind of living a hard life for the first couple of years of life of their major league of their professional baseball life in the hopes that um, that one day they make more money. And it's interesting to read about you know some of these players' thoughts on this. Uh, the Washington City Paper published an article uh, a couple days ago, and they talked to Adam Eaton about this. And Eaton was asked about the equal pay, the getting fair pay, and this is what he says. He said, "Quote: If you do, complacency sets in. I think it's difficult, yes, and I think it's easy for me to say that because of where I am. But I wouldn't be where I am without that. If I am financially am supported down there." and financially can make a living and not have to get to the big leagues, I think I'm a little bit more comfortable. So my question is, is this a common thought process among major leaguers that this the grind is worth it? This is so, it's not just within major leaguers, guys. This is in the minor leagues, too. So I'll tell, I'll tell you a perfect example of this. I'm down in Bowling Green, Kentucky earlier this year, writing a story on Wander Toronto's the number one prospect in baseball. He mm-hmm. made $3.85 million out of the Dominican Republic. He's a shortstop with the Rays. Switch hitter. He is going to be a dude. And mm-hmm. so just, just to get some sense of, uh, you know, what life is like for him compared to some of his teammates, I was talking with his teammates, and I spoke with a kid named Connor Hollis. Connor Hollis was an undrafted free agent out of the University of Houston, who signed with the Rays for, for, like, a plane ticket, practically, and ended up winning the Appalachian League batting title last year, the only guy who finished ahead of Wander Franco. And and he's an educated guy, and, you know, we talked about that. And I, I you know, I said to him, what, you know, what the, what the reasonable wage for minor leaguers make? And he said, you know, I feel like if we're paid, uh, what – you know, what typical workers are paid for, for jobs like this where they're entertaining. If we're actually making a living wage, we're not going to have the same drive that we might right now. And I, I said to him, you are brainwashed. You know that? And and he said, I might, he said, I might be, but that, that's how I feel about it. And this is like, this is not a, like a stupid guy either. This is a, and, and not that playing chess makes you smart, but this is a guy who passes the bus rides playing chess against his teammates. You know, yeah. it's not like a blockhead meathead baseball player. This is somebody with an actual thought process, but inside of baseball, I think it, it is romanticized to to this really dangerous degree where the players don't even don't even acknowledge how much they're being taken advantage of. I can't imagine that players have this mentality that that if they were paying a being paid a living wage, that the incentive to make the major leagues would disappear. There's so many great things that come with being a major leaguer, apart from being able to afford rent. You know, people know your name. You're playing in front of crowds of forty thousand people. Like, it, it's not as though it's just money. I mean, it, first of all, it's a lot more money. But second of all, you know, like there are. Lots of non-monetary elements here. 
first of all, you are at the top of your profession. That means a lot. Like, I just, I just can't imagine that that you would have such a sort of myopic focus on pay that you would, you know, neglect all the other things. Yeah, I don't even that though. I'll tell you what it is. I think that athletes, when they're when they're competing, almost crave the extra. Like they want more incentive than they actually need to push them. They need because they see that they see the guys they're playing against, right? Uh, most right. of the time, you're going to have at least one person who is more talented than you. Like in one of those situations, you know, probably not. But the rest of these guys, they're going to be facing people who are more talented than them. On top of that, they're going to be facing all sorts of other, uh, you know, other elements that can get in the way. You never know about your health. You never know about your family situation. You never know about your personal life, your mental health. You never know about any of these things and, and things that can sideline. All of them are going through that shared experience, right? And right. all of them have varying degrees of that. If you're looking for a little extra push, you take it when you can get it. That's why so many players in the big leagues do just make things up. They tell themselves things that simply are true. This person doubted you. This person doesn't think you're worth a damn. This person wants to you fail. Anything you can get to push yourself to succeed, you will take. And I almost feel like that's what they do. It's like it, it's brainwashing yourself into believing something, even though deep down you probably know it's not real. Yeah, you saw this just this week with uh, Logan Allen and the John Cena story where John Cena bet him a dollar that he won't make the majors. Just as added incentive. So, uh, you know, I just, I don't know how this sort of, you know, each player is competing with one another and they're, you know, sort of looking for that extra edge. But then we've got this whole notion of them all being in a union together fighting for the same cause, this whole notion of solidarity. Uh, and it seems to me those things are at odds with each other. And you can almost see that reflected in the current state of union negotiation where the free agents to be the veterans seem to think that the solution is more free agency. Uh, you know, you've got players on the lower end of the totem pole maybe arguing for a, a different distribution of, of the income uh, or of the, you know, the funds where you, you raise uh, you know, arbitration, you raise minimum salary, you do something that way. Uh, it's just interesting to me. And then obviously everyone in the union doesn't seem to, you know, if they think about the, the minor leaguers at all, they're, you know, basically not interested in seeing them get much more in the way of extra money. Uh, and so what I see from my perspective is a union that if it goes into battle with a united ownership group uh, who's very clear about what they want, uh, that they're just going to be disorganized, dysfunctional, and unsuccessful. Uh, I, I agree with part. Here's here's the thing that I think it's difficult to to understand. Um, there are always chasms in the union. There always right. have been chasms in the union. There always will be chasms in the union. That's what happens when you put together twelve hundred people 
who come from disparate backgrounds, disparate right. uh, countries, uh, socioeconomically, uh, race, you know, the, the racial breakdown is just like, these are, these are people whose only thing that unites all 1,200 of them is that they play Major League Baseball. Uh, right. And so the, the shared priorities are much harder to wrangle than they are among the 30 owners. Um, but I think it also shows, guys, that when you have unanimity and strong leadership in the union, they're an enormously powerful force. Like, getting 30 billionaires to agree on something is not altogether difficult to do. Getting oh. 1,200 people who whose shared experience is so different to agree on something, there there is great strength in that. And it's the kind of strength that I think union or, or that that clubs, frankly, fear. And, and understandably fear. Because, man, if you can get the players together, they are a really, really powerful force. And I understand that in this country right now, the the predilection, and, and, and I suppose this goes back a while as well, but the predilection, uh, for some reason, whatever it may be, is, is for the general public to take the side of ownership over labor. Like, that's just sort of been the way it is in America. But I think if there's a really compelling message from labor, and, and that it's coming from players, people everyone knows, respect, love, and it's coming from the right people, that message has a chance to overwhelm whatever the owners are trying to do. Uh, this incarnation of the union has not found that message yet. And it's got a couple of years left to do it, but, but that message needs to be loud, it needs to be clear, it needs to be consistent, and it needs to be distributed by the right people. Here, but here is my problem with that whole, you know, the idea that that people are going to, that the general public is going to find solidarity with labor in the Major League Baseball context. I mean, at the end of the day, the average salary of a Major League Baseball player is $3.4 million. Now, I know that, you know, obviously billionaires are billionaires. Uh, so that's not exactly what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, that the average revenues or the, the total revenues in Major League Baseball have gone from $1 billion in 1994 to just over $10 billion now. And it's not because there's been this massive spike in interest in baseball. It's because of the cable boom and the cable bubble, which charges average, you know, people who don't even watch baseball essentially. Or whether or not they do, you know, seven fifty a month just for the cable package, uh, seven fifty a month just for the channel. Excuse me. Uh, then we're seeing a huge rise in ticket prices. Uh, obviously, not to sound like you know someone who's stereotyping this whole thing, but we're seeing this huge rise in in luxury boxes and and stadiums that are being built, you know, to extract the most amount of revenue possible. Uh, and, and the way that they've done that is by catering largely to a, you know, the elites with disposable incomes. Uh, and all this has happened as 
the player's share of revenue, you know, it hasn't gone up 10x, but it's still gone up 4x. You know, you're, you're still seeing players, the average salary was under a million in 94, now it's 3.4 million. So again, rambling like I am and like I love to do. Uh, how is it that a, a labor union that is making its profits, you know, just as the ownership is, but making its profits off the backs of ordinary people can then turn around and say, this is why you should side with us. I think the argument that let focus on the dollar itself and, and we'll focus on fairness. And I think fairness is a, and, and look, maybe, maybe that rings hollow when you say what's fair when you're making, you know, three plus, four plus, you know, in some cases, 30 plus million dollars a year. And, and I think that's going to be the sentiment of some people. But I also think the sentiment of a lot of people is your, your bosses taking money that you have helped earn is a very, like, common, um, almost populist rhetoric. And right. it, it's that pocket, and it's that populism that I think unions around the country have lost. Like, the, the union is supposed to represent the average worker. Well, the average worker in Major League Baseball makes, um, you know, like a hundred times what the average worker in the United States makes. Uh, it also, I think, speaks to uh, what happens when when workers get together and shows a shows a particular strength. And that's the type of strength that that's worth talking about. That's worth uh, really publicizing because if you can make changes and have a better, more friendly environment for the average worker, isn't that the goal for everyone out there, regardless of where your salary structure is? Well, you've you got to be able to sell the concept that a rising tide lifts all boats. I, I mean, to me, that you know, the union has to argue yeah. that if we get a, a greater share of the revenue from our owners, then you will too. Uh, so I mean I don't I don't know it, we, it it all comes down sure to a populist argument but also to this concept of solidarity as we send all of this by the way as our audition to be uh you know Bernie Sanders's next campaign manager. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's pretty solid. Thank you. Um, so. The article you written about earlier this week about uh, the Rays and about their half move to Saint to Montreal, where they play half their games April the early months in Tampa and then pick up and move to Montreal. Um, you know that article that idea, you know, has been done in in slight before with the with the Expos back in '03 and '04 where they played a few games in Puerto Rico, but nothing like this, nothing like a permanent move where half would be home and half would be in Montreal. So just wondering where this is now, where this stands now. Um, is this actually a thing that could happen, or is this more of a, you know, just kind of seeing, kicking the tires and seeing what happens? Uh, it, it's a very fly-in-the-sky idea, and a lot of things need to come together, the most difficult of which is going to be finding stadium financing and a site uh, for a, you know, 35 to 40 game a year schedule in the Tampa Bay area, whether it's Tampa, St. Pete, or, or somewhere else. 
um, they've for 10 years now, for 10 plus years, tried to find financing and stadium site for 81 games a year and have not been able to do that. So yeah. that's, that's going to be hard. And I think the, the hope is that the, the appeal for a cheaper stadium because it's not going to need a roof and for a smaller stadium uh, that, uh, you know, may end up juicing the, the demand for tickets because the supply is short is, is the right plan. That's a hard mm-hmm. sell. And, and I understand why that's a hard sell on the, on the Tampa St. Pete area because they feel like they've been through these shenanigans for a while now. But, but the question, I think, ultimately, for the politicians who are – Listen, they're they're definitely saber rattling right now as they should because it's a negotiation. But but the question is going to be, do you want to lose your baseball team? And Tampa St. Pete is a is a populous area uh, that should theoretically uh, give far greater support for a good team than it actually does. Um. That you know, the fact that they're drawing fewer than fifteen thousand fans a year, uh, fans a game right now, for a team like the Rays that are as good as they are, uh, you know, part of its stadium, part of its stadium location. But damn, it, I, I feel like if you go to other cities uh, and you got a team that's as good, more than fifteen thousand people are going to show up regardless of where the stadium is. Yeah, I mean. This- this has not been a new problem for the Rays, though. I mean, when they even when they were great in the World Series team uh, back in 08, they still had attendance problems. Um, so it's just, you know, it, it's not even just Tampa, though, with attendance problems. Cleveland, who's been one of the best teams in baseball over the past four years, is having massive attendance problems this year. Throughout baseball, you're seeing massive attendance problems. And I think this really, you know, goes back to what Jacob was saying a little bit before about, you know, the lack of catering to the fans uh, where things have been moving towards the executive and how it costs a family of four to 150 bucks to go to a ball game. Um, you know, this is my own mini rant here. I don't really have a question, mostly just making a point. Um, but rant, it's just, John. yeah, yes, it's, it's part of the, it wouldn't be the rash cast without mini rants. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, you know, for Tampa especially, it's just hard to imagine what they can do to build a good fan culture there. Uh, you know, you've had Tommy Pham call the fans out this past offseason, and it's it's hard to really imagine what they can do. You know, building a stadium, making it smaller may cause more sellouts, but it might not necessarily cause a bigger upswing in, in, in fandom uh, unless they're going to really, you know, cut prices, t- cut ticket prices, and do something where, like, the Atlanta Falcons, where food is $3 for a, chi- uh, like a plate of chicken tenders or where food is reasonably priced um, and things are reasonably, well, I don't know about tickets, but where going to a game day experience is a reasonably priced experience and not just, you know, running out of family of house and home. Yeah. Let, let me, let me ask you guys, let me, let, let me ask you guys a question though. And this is, this is not like a, this is not a rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. Typically, typically when it comes to culture, what is the, primary driver of that culture? Uh, I mean, what do you mean by that? What What do you think is the impetus behind most good sporting cultures? It's winning, right? 
Yeah. I mean, in that's general, the hardest, but... That's the hardest, that is the hardest part, and they're doing the hardest part. Yeah. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's true. I think, yeah, winning is correlated with attendance to a degree, but... But you also look at, like, the Cubs. I mean, the Cubs have lost, have been the sore losers for baseball, you know, until recently for a hundred plus years and they had one of the best fan cultures, you know, and well, it's, it's so, not necessarily just winning. So I'm going to make it the, the obverse point there. And I'm going to say that, you know, we've got this concept of sort of sports exceptionalism that, that all you got to do, you put a sports team there, you win and the fans will come. But the truth is you got to look at sports and sporting events as one entertainment choice among you know hundreds, uh, people have things that they want to do with their days, and you know, depending on price, depending on location of the stadium, depending on yes, winning, you know, sports may or may not be a part of it. So you know, I, I've got this problem with you know people asking. Sure, I mean the Rays are winning; they're winning with a a bunch of generally faceless players who you know. It's very difficult to sell, you know, apart from Blake Snell, uh, that it's difficult to sell sort of uh, fans on. You know, they haven't won anything other than 90 games last season. Uh, and, right. you know, they're, they're still located in St. Pete, a bajillion miles away from anything. Uh, and, you know, they're still playing in this dank, depressing stadium. So, I mean, to answer your question, I mean, I don't know if, you know, if they built this new stadium and dropped prices and, you know, made it as amenable to the fan base as possible, you know, whether or not that would solve the problems of Tampa. It might just be a bad sports market. But uh, my point is that they're, I mean, I don't know how hard they're really trying, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I you know, I think they've tried for a decade to get a new stadium built now. And and here's and here's the thing. Um, I think I think publicly financed stadiums are a complete racket and that no mm-hmm. nobody should pay for a publicly financed stadium. Like no municipality should be paying for a stadium. I think if the owners are reaping the profits from the stadium Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know where. Uh, the question is, has the tide turned on publicly financed stadiums? Where would they go? Would they go to Portland, to Montreal, where you've still got, I mean, you've got a government in Ontario that, or not in ta- Ontario, excuse me, Quebec. I know my Canadian provinces. Uh, you've got a Quebecois government that is, is not 
a huge fan of these major public investments. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know. I feel like Montreal is being used as a pawn in all this when they're no more likely to give the fi the publicly financed stadium than, uh, than Tampa is. And I just, I feel bad for those here, fans. Here, I, I will, I will, I will say this. I, I don't think you should. Because I don't think Montreal, I honestly don't think Montreal is being used here at all. I think people at the forefront of Montreal, um, their, their plan to bring back baseball, particularly Stephen Bromfin, uh, whose father owned the Expos originally, uh, believes that baseball would succeed uh, best as a 40 to 45 game sport in Montreal. I think that is, I think this is a plan. That that group, which has been at the forefront of bringing baseball back to Montreal and has a stadium site ready and and has the financing uh, in place, potentially to build a new stadium, they are on board with this idea. And if they're on board with this idea, I'm not saying that that you sh that people shouldn't be skeptical about it because there are so many I not pieces for us to make this thing actually work. But, but the idea that it's, uh, that it's never, ever, ever going to happen, I just think is, is naive to think. Because if you have rich people who believe that this is the right path, rich people tend to get things done that they want to get done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all it ever took to change the world was one powerful rich person. Uh so, I think uh, I think that's about a wrap for this yeah. week's episode of the Rashcast. We want to thank Jeff Passan for coming on, and Jeff Passan's eleven-year-old son, who did an excellent job as well. Uh huh. And uh, uh, we will see you guys next week. Yep. By the way, one more thing. Mm -hmm. You gotta come up with a better name than Rashcast. We know. It really does sound like a medical treatment. <laughs> well, you know, our last name, our last name isn't great already, so we got to do with what we have. I know. Yeah, but I, like, you know what I'm saying? You know, when your last name is a skin disease, you got to make good with what you got, you know? <laughs> All right, yeah. boys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you all next week.